Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on my favorite team, the Sacramento Kings. So today, we're going to have JC Fisher guest host the podcast. So I'm going to bring him on now. JC, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Good to be here and happy to be chosen as the guest host for your beloved Kings. Well, following in the tradition of the Deep Dives podcast, we're going to start with a little bit of an off-season overview here for Sacramento. And the first question I have for you, Nick, is, is Aaron Aflalo worth the deal that he got from the Kings? He's in the two-year, $25 million contract. So is he delivering value for you guys? So I think that's a bit of a double-edged sword. The question of, is he contributing to the team, is probably yes. The question of, is he worth the contract, is a little more complicated. And I think at the end of the day, $12 million is very close to fair value for him. He's really picked up his three-point shooting over the course of the last little stretch of the season, especially since Rudy Gay has been out. And quite frankly, given the options that the Kings had in free agency, I think getting a follow for a two-year $25 million deal was a pretty solid pickup, especially since next year is, it's not fully guaranteed. It's only guaranteed for one and a half million. So they can cut him if they decide maybe he doesn't have a particularly great offseason in terms of growth. Maybe they feel like freeing up some money for some other moves. The contract that he's on gives the Kings a lot of options. And while he has been pretty poor on defense, his shooting has been really helpful to the team. And the Kings really don't have many options on the wing. So I'd say. 10 million is probably close to what I'd say is fair value for him, but the gap between that and 12 million is not all that bad. Okay. Well, now that we've established what a follows value is and kind of the neighborhood where it resides in, the next question I have is another interesting salary decision by the Kings front office, which is Garrett Temple. What's he actually bringing to the table, and is he worth the three year, $24 million contract he was given this summer? So he's definitely been worth it this year. He's been probably the best wing slash guard defender that the Kings have had this season. I've been pleasantly surprised by his play. He's shooting decently from three-point range, which is not, you know, in line with the rest of his career. He's above his career average. He's a little under 37% from deep. He's been really good on defense. I think part of the thing with Garrett Temple is at the beginning of the season, I was very worried about his contract because I was expecting that the Kings would slot him in to a lot of the backup point guard minutes, and that's really not what he's good at. So I thought that the contract would be problematic because they were going to try and play him at point guard, which is really not his best spot. But instead, he's been mostly at shooting guard, spending a little bit of time at small forward. He's been a great defender on the wing. He's been good enough on offense that he's definitely worth his minutes. I think the problem with Temple's contract is not this year and probably not even next year, but that third year, he's going to be 32 years old and he's going to turn 33 during the season. And I just don't know how he's going to age. And especially given his hamstring tear that has him out of the lineup right now, those hamstring injuries can be troubling. And especially for an older player, I think a lot of the value on the back end of his contract will depend on both how he can recover from this injury and how his game ages over the next couple of years. Yeah, we've seen Darren Williams down in Dallas struggle with a calf injury and the similar type of musculature. 
So I wonder, how how do you think the kings are going to treat Garrett Temple? Are they going to end up rushing him back because this is the year to push to the playoffs? Or are they really going to be thinking long-term here with this injury? I'm not even sure it would be as much rushing him back to try and make a push at the playoffs as much as the Kings' wing rotation was thin to start the season, and it is a lot thinner now. Rudy Gay obviously is out with the Achilles injury. Omri Caspi still hasn't come back from his own calf injury. And losing Temple after losing both of those guys is going to make the wing rotation a real struggle for the Kings. Malachi Richardson has been playing more recently. That's been nice to see. He's had some really solid moments. Ben McElmore has sort of found his way back into the rotation after the recent rash of injuries. He He's very much had an up and down year. And I would like to think that the Kings won't rush him back, but... I feel like they very much will try and get him back on the court as soon as possible just because they don't have many other options for their wing rotation. Yeah, you bring up a good point there. And perfectly want to jump into Malachi Richardson, who you just mentioned. He's played in 18 games this season, mostly in the last month or two. He has no starts. He's got decent minutes per game. But what's he actually contributing? His PER is below 10. He's not scoring a ton. His D rating's crazy high at 115. Is he actually contributing to the Kings, or is he just filling minutes that they would much rather go somewhere else? So I think the interesting thing about Malachi is that those overall numbers, I don't think, really paint a picture of the player that he's been this year, because he is incredibly inconsistent at this point in his career. And he'll have some great games that make you think, you know, wow, he might be a really solid pickup for this team. He might have a chance to be a solid starter within the next couple of years. And then you have other games where he just, he can't buy a basket and he looks lost on defense. And he'll do things like go five for six from the floor and play great defense in a win against the Cavaliers. And then less than a week later, he'll go three for 10 in a massive loss against the Rockets and turn the ball over twice in 20 minutes, despite not really having the ball in his hands that much. So he's definitely shown flashes, and especially on this team in particular, that's really nice to see. But his overall numbers have not been that great, and I think a lot of that is just that some games he's been pretty decent, and some games he's just been awful. And that's part of life as an NBA rookie. Sometimes you hit the wall, sometimes everything clicks. Eventually, you'll get the consistency if you're going to stay in this league long term. So it will be good for the Kings if Malachi can take this as a platform and develop. But otherwise, he uh, might not be long for the NBA. So another move that happened this offseason that had a lot of people saying, oh, well, that just looks like exactly what the Kings would do, is the signing of Ty Lawson. Now, they did get him on a minimum deal, and he has been contributing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on Ty Lawson and his kind of comeback season after the disaster in Houston last year. Ty Lawson was an interesting choice by the Kings, but even at the time, I thought it was absolutely the right choice because the under-discussed aspect of why the Kings picked up Ty Lawson in the first place. Going into opening day, Darren Collison was suspended, <laughs> and the Kings had literally no other pure point guards on the roster. They had Jordan Farmar, they cut him within like a day. They had no one to start at point guard position, and that's why they brought Ty Lawson in. They paid him a minimum contract. They were basically, as far as I can assume, expecting him to start those first eight games and go from there. And 
in a lot of ways, he's had the same issues that he had in Houston and Indiana last season. He's not shooting well. He's shooting 29% on three-pointers, 44% overall. But the thing that Ty Lawson has that the Kings desperately, desperately need is getting to the rim and creating baskets for other players. He's got a really great chemistry with Willie Cauley-Stein that's especially shown in the past couple of weeks as Willie's finally gotten back into the rotation, which I'm very, very happy about. And he's not bad enough on defense to offset how helpful he is to the second unit, just to have someone who can create with the ball in their hands. Because once Darren Collison is not on the floor and... DeMarcus is usually not on the floor with the bench guys. When you take those two guys out, especially after Rudy Gay's injury, they just don't have anybody who can create baskets for themselves or others off the dribble. And Ty Lawson does that really well. And his pick and rolls with Willie Cauley-Stein have been awesome. He's getting a little bit better in pick and roll situations with Kosa Kufos as well. And he's not even close to what he was in Denver two years ago, but the Kings haven't needed him to be. And he's been very solid for what they should have expected him to do. If they were expecting him to go back to being a near all-star caliber player, you know, that's unfortunate. They're not going to get that. They haven't been, but overall he's been solid for sure. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Moving on from Ty Lawson, though, there's the final player I really wanted to ask you about from the offseason, and that's Anthony Tolliver. Tolliver has been known as a guy who can give a lot or a little, depending on his role on the team, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on what Sacramento has been able to get out of him this season. Anthony Tolliver has done exactly what I would have hoped he'd done. He's a stretch four. That's what he does. He's been doing it very well. He's shooting 39% from deep. He's shooting most of his shots from deep. He's been decent on defense and really helpful as a defensive communicator. He's been extraordinarily professional about dealing with the incredible amount of fluctuation in his playing time, in his role. He started a few games for the Kings, and interspersed with those have been some NPCDs. He's done exactly what the Kings need him to do. He's on a great contract, also only partially guaranteed for next year. But I would like to think that the Kings bring him back next year, because especially with the rising salary cap, getting someone who can be a solid contributor as a stretch four is really helpful in general, and particularly helpful alongside DeMarcus Cousins, who's probably going to be on this team for a while. And how's Tolliver looked since Rudy Gay went down? Has he seen a minute spike or anything? His minutes have gone up a little bit. Yeah, Tolliver has been playing a little bit more recently since the Rudy Gay injury, and he's been playing a little bit more, I think, not just because of the Rudy Gay injury, but also because of the Omri Caspi injury. He's really a stretch four, but he's been spending some minutes at small forward this season just because the Kings have struggled there. And again, he's been playing just as hard when he gets two minutes or when he plays 35. And he's very good at knowing his role and performing it at a high level. And, you know, there's I don't think there's anything that I could have wanted from Tolliver that he hasn't really been doing. The only worrying thing with him is that he has not been rebounding, but he's just never been a high-level rebounder. So I guess the one thing that he hasn't really been all that great at is not something that I was expecting or could reasonably have expected him to do. Yeah, it seems like Tolliver's the kind of guy that the Kings could use a lot more of, and over the years they either haven't held on to them or haven't gone after them in the first place. Somebody who's willing to play hard, somebody who's willing to spend every minute like it might be their last minute on a basketball court. 
We'll talk a little bit about the Kings' future later, but I want to move into an overview of what actually has been happening this season so far, and not just the off-season stuff. And maybe we can start by talking about the big man rotation. And one thing to look at right off the bat is, should Willie Cauley-Sign be starting? We had a recent article up on Hashtag Basketball about this in the Sacramento Kings session, so I thought I'd get your thoughts as well. I've been a huge Willie Cauley-Stein fan since before the Kings picked him. I was really hoping that they would take him with the sixth overall pick that year. I was ecstatic when they did take him. And the reason for that is he is a wonderful fit alongside DeMarcus Cousins because Cousins does everything on the offensive end and Cauley-Stein does not clog up the post. He's not clamoring for the ball at all times. He's an incredible athlete who can defend perimeter players in the pick and roll, or honestly, even perimeter players not in the pick and roll. And he's seven foot one. And as everybody saw in their recent game against Boston, he is an absolute freak athlete. And I think the Kings should start him alongside DeMarcus Cousins. I've thought that since last year when that pairing was really effective down the stretch of the season. And I think that will continue to be effective going forward, especially as Cousins continues to expand his range beyond the three-point line. So why do you think Cauley Stein hasn't been getting that many minutes over his career thus to this point? So he got a decent chunk of minutes last season, especially more down the stretch. He did end up making second team all-rookie. And then at the start of this season, he was really struggling to adjust from George Carl's all-offense, no-defense system to a more regimented structure under Dave Yeager. Last year, a lot of what Collie Stein was doing was just sort of roving around on the defensive end and getting in whoever had the ball's way. And he wasn't getting as many minutes under Yeager because he wasn't really as versed in his defensive system as Carl's semi-non-existent one last year. Also, Costa Kufos was a guy that Yeager had had under him in Memphis and who he trusted to run the defensive system properly. And Cauley Stein sort of struggled on both ends early in the season, but especially on the defensive end. And then over the last few weeks, as he started getting more time in the lineup, he's developed a great chemistry with Ty Lawson running pick and rolls. He's taking occasional mid-range jumpers, which is not the kind of game that he needs, but at least it's helpful that he can occasionally make completely wide open 15 footers and his awareness is developing i mean it's one thing to think oh you know he spent three years in kentucky he should know how to play defense but you know he wasn't playing in an nba system he's still only in his second year in the league he's still getting used to that and he was rail thin when he came into the league he just wasn't bulky enough to guard bigger players he's getting closer to that point now and hopefully his minutes will continue. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed over the years of following the NBA is that people dramatically underestimate the difference between college defense and NBA-level defense, especially from the big man position, where you're really quarterbacking your entire team. But beyond Cauley-Stein, Kufos, and of course Cousins, the Kings have been searching for how to round out their big man rotation. And Tolliver gives minutes, but he's not really a guy you want taking up 25-plus minutes a night. What about Scal and Papianis? Scal, the BCA, was a later first-round pick. Papianis obtained in the pick trade with the Suns. How are those guys looking? They're playing a lot of D-League minutes, but not much up in the NBA. Do you think they're going to be ready at any point this season? This season, maybe not. Scal has shown a lot. I think he was a 
great pickup for the Kings at 28, especially since he had the physical tools to be considered like in the top three coming into his freshman season at Kentucky. And I think the problem that Willie Cauley-Stein has had just in terms of awareness on both ends, but also size is even more magnified in Scal because he's seven feet tall and barely 220 pounds. And the question with Scal is what his best position is, I think. And if he's a center, the Kings have a lot of centers right now. And if he's a stretch four, he really needs to develop his shooting and more importantly, his perimeter defense. Because if he's not going to be sort of always around the rim blocking shots as a pure center, he's going to need to get better at defending in space. And there were questions about whether he would play small forward at times for the Kings. I don't think that would work. I just don't think he's developed enough physically to be able to do that. I doubt he's quick enough to guard small forwards, although I'm less worried about his speed issues than I am about his size issues. I think Scal is far more likely than Papianis to have an impact this year, just because his skill set is more varied, I think, than Papianis's, and that variation in his game would definitely make him a better fit alongside the rest of the Kings centers, whereas Papianis is a pure five who is trying to get minutes on a team that has quite a lot of center minutes already distributed. Yeah, is Papianis, how do you feel about that pick? Because if DeMarcus Cousins is going to receive the big-time extension that we'll discuss later, then... 38, 40 minutes a night at center is taken for the Kings. So what what's Papianis actually going to be contributing ever? Or is that a sign that maybe Cousins isn't necessarily going to be staying a King forever? I wish I could tell you what the Kings were thinking when they drafted Papianis. The honest answer is I don't know. I think if the Kings had taken Scal 13th and Papianis 28th, because I'm pretty sure Papianis would have been available at 28th, my view on this draft would be a lot more positive, but I never understood that pick because he is a Goliath in a league that is very quickly moving away from post-up big men who can't shoot beyond the arc. And he's very, very much a project. And I think the logic behind taking him was sort of codified before the new CBA came out and the max extension ideas came out because the only reason I could think of for drafting Papianis was as insurance in case Cousins was going to leave. But I think the new CBA has made it very, very difficult for Cousins to leave. And the Kings have certainly repeatedly expressed that they would like to keep him around. So I don't know with Papianis. He's just, he's really slow and he doesn't shoot great really in general, but certainly has no jump shot to speak of and honestly i'm not sure what his what his ceiling might be but i really don't think the kings are even close to the best place for him because there's no room for him to develop on the team and i'm not sure how useful he even would be to the team yeah a small part of you has to wonder if vlade divat was seeing a little bit of himself in Papianis somehow and maybe had a rosier image than many others but rookies aside, especially rookies who aren't really playing, the biggest difference in the Kings' big man rotation as the season has developed is the injury to Rudy Gay about a month ago. What kind of impact has that had on the Kings? And in my opinion, is why is it such a huge loss? And if you agree or disagree, feel free to come at me. 
I'm not sure, honestly. I think that's the real question. He is a huge loss on the offensive end. There's no question about that. The defensive end is where things get a little bit more difficult. And despite being an incredible athlete with a ridiculous wingspan, Rudy has never really been that solid of a defender. That being said, the Kings really don't have many scoring options with him out. I mean, after <laughs> after DeMarcus Cousins and Rudy Gay, the next highest scorer on the team is Darren Collison at 13 points a game. No one else on the roster is putting out more than 10 points a game. So... On the offensive end, the Kings are going to and have already struggled with Rudy Gay out. I'm holding off judgment for now, mostly because Omri Caspi hasn't come back yet, and Omri was sort of out of the rotation earlier in the season, and he had a really, really solid year last year under George Carl. And I want to see what the team plays like with Omri sort of filling in more of Rudy's minutes before I like fully pass judgment on it, but the Kings have also been five and six since he was injured, and they're twenty one and thirty two on the year, so that is an improvement. And, you know, since then they've beaten the Warriors, they beat the Cavs a week after he went out. So there have been a lot of people talking for many years about how Rudy Gay doesn't really help your team. You know, every team that's gotten rid of him has gotten better after he left. I think he's really been a lot more efficient in Sacramento than he was in his previous stops. But it is interesting to note that they have been playing slightly better since his injury. Yeah, just for context, for those of you in our audience who haven't followed Rudy Gay's career incredibly closely, he is this year, before his injury, he was shooting the second best three-point percentage of his career. He was the third highest effective field goal percentage of his career. He was scoring in line with his career averages, even on less shots. He had one of the highest free throw percentage of his career. He was rebounding better than he had at any other point in his career. He was doing a lot of really good things, but still not necessarily making that incredible impact you hope to get from a guy making as much money as he is. So moving on, because you mentioned Caspi, to maybe the wing overview, since Caspi's kind of a 3-4 combo guy down there. Is he going to get minutes when he returns? Because he probably should have been getting minutes all along. He can fill in that role with... Roughly similar defense to Gay. He's certainly a better three-point shooter. And he's a guy that I've always looked at and wondered why Sacramento keeps him around for the pay and then doesn't play him when a lot of other teams would probably love to have a guy like Omri Caspi on the floor for them. Yeah, I would also love to have Omri Caspi on the floor for them. And maybe I'm coming into this with a little bit of bias since, you know, Omri Caspi is literally my avatar on the work group chat. But... <laughs> Omri Caspi had a fantastic season last year and has been having a solid year this year in very limited minutes. And I'm really hoping that he will start seeing more minutes with Rudy Gay out. The biggest roadblock in his way is that Dave Yeager seems to really love Matt Barnes, which is interesting because Matt Barnes, you know, got a misdemeanor assault charge and is shooting 38% from the floor and 33% from deep and has been spotty on defense. I don't get why Matt Barnes has been playing so much more than Omri Caspi has. Barnes also, by the way, is tied for fourth on the team in turnovers per game, despite, you know, being a small forward, power forward combo and everyone else ahead of him being either guards or Rudy Gay and DeMarcus Cousins. So maybe my preference for Caspi is also partially driven by the fact that I don't think Matt Barnes has been particularly effective, but 
Caspi can really help this team, and he gets along very well with DeMarcus Cousins. You can look through old videos of their bromance. Some of it's honestly adorable. And yeah, I don't see any reason why Omri Caspi should not see a huge uptick in minutes once he gets healthy. So bringing up Matt Barnes, why is he still starting? I don't know. I really don't know. But what does he do that hurts the Kings? You talk about the turnovers. Are there other things he's doing that are not great? Or are there positives he's bringing to the table that maybe we're not giving enough credit to? Uh, He's also shooting 38% from the floor. So Barnes is actually not... He's only started 13 games this year. But he has been, you know, getting a decent chunk of minutes for the Kings. And I don't see it. I mean, he's better on defense than Caspi against bigger guys. I think Caspi might actually be better at defending guys on the wings. He's so much less valuable on offense. He's taking a lot more shots than he should be given how atrocious his percentages have been. And I just don't think his defensive contributions can offset the, in my opinion, wide, wide gap between his offense and Caspi's offense. I certainly don't disagree there. Barnes at age 36 is playing the fifth most minutes on the Kings, which probably isn't that desirable for him and certainly isn't that desirable for the Sacramento Kings if they're trying to win in this the first year of the Golden One Center. One of the things we've noted is the surprisingly competent point guard play from Ty Lawson and Darren Collison and even some of the backups when they come in. How do you think that's going? What do you think the Kings are doing? And how is Dave Yeager coercing that type of play and coaxing it out of these guys? So Darren Collison is having arguably the best year of his career. He's shooting 42% on threes, which is his career high. He's not turning the ball over very much at all. He's actually turning it over as many times per game as Matt Barnes is, which is honestly incredible given how often he has the ball in his hands. And the Kings have run a lot of... Collison and Ty Lawson together in sets, which honestly, I was expecting to be a lot worse defensively than it has been. I think part of that is because Collison, despite only being six feet tall, he's hyper athletic and he's a lot better at guarding bigger players, certainly than I thought he would be. And Colson and Lawson are almost completely opposite at this point in their career in terms of the skills that they bring to the table. Lawson is a lot better at creating for others. He's still a fantastic passer. His Even though his shooting isn't what it was during his last few years in Denver, his passing has certainly still been fantastic. And Darren is, I think, he has a little bit of the shooting guard and a point guard's body problem, but pairing him with Lawson has taken care of a lot of those issues. Also having DeMarcus Cousins on the floor helps you if you're a point guard that can really, really shoot like Collison can, but isn't necessarily as good at creating for others. So I think that point guard pairing has been really solid and very surprisingly so, especially since Lawson was brought in on a minimum deal basically to eat up minutes during Collison's suspension. Yeah, I think it has turned out pretty nicely for the Kings, and we'll see what happens this offseason when those nice deals might go away as guys who've proved themselves start to earn a little more money, like Ty Lawson. Moving on to the season as a whole and how the Kings' outlook has been, I noticed that they don't really have a lot of streaks. They can't pull themselves together much. They have one four-game win streak, a couple losing streaks around three, four games. But what is it about the Kings that they can go in one night and beat the Warriors in overtime, but they lose to the 76ers a couple nights before, they lose to the Bulls the night after, they beat the Celtics just this past Wednesday, and I have no idea what they're going to do tonight against the Hawks. 
the Kings might honestly be the most inconsistent team in basketball. I mean, you talked about this already. They are one of the two teams in the league that has beaten both the Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. And the night before they beat the Golden State Warriors, they lost to the Phoenix Suns. And the Chicago game, they lost, they ended up losing by five points, which completely does not tell the story of the game because they were down 27 in the middle of the third quarter, came all the way back, and then lost at the end on a very questionable non-call on Dwayne Wade and an even more questionable blow up by DeMarcus Cousins with a second left in the game afterwards. So I wish this team could figure out their consistency issues because, I mean, again, you know, that sort of tells the whole story when you can lose to the Phoenix Suns one night and then beat the Warriors the next day. Like, they didn't even have a day off in between. The like, second night of a back-to-back against the Warriors having lost to the Suns and the win. And, you know, they've gone from the eighth seed for a while to they dropped down to, I think, 12th at one point. They're now back up to 10th in the Western Conference. I mean, it's good that they haven't had sort of long, depressing losing streaks for the most part, but they also just can't keep it together consistently in any sort of form or fashion, and that's been a big problem for them in just in general over the last, you know, entirety of DeMarcus Cousins' career, but particularly this year. Yeah, they're a few games back from the eight seed, just a couple games, but they're following teams that are improving. Portland's looked much better on defense of late. They're going to be difficult to catch. It's going to be difficult to chase down the Nuggets, who have really turned it on lately as well, especially since making their starting center change. I'm just not sure. Should the Kings be pushing for the playoffs? Is this really what they need to do? Or do they need to take another Sacramento Kings season, take another draft pick in a very deep, very strong draft, and try to hope for the best? So the Kings are very, very strongly incentivized to not go all in for the playoffs because this is the last year that they owe a top 10 protected pick to the Chicago Bulls. And after this season, that turns into a second round pick. And that is unaffected by their additional pick swap with the Philadelphia 76ers. Basically, if the Kings end up in the bottom 10, they will keep that pick. They will not have to trade it to the Bulls. If Philly ends up lower in the lottery than the Kings, they could still do that swap. But as long as the Kings remain in the bottom 10, they do not owe that pick to Chicago. And that is a huge incentive. I also think that they just won't be able to catch Denver or Portland anyway. Portland has looked so much better on defense since Alfaro Camino came back. Denver has not played defense with Jokic in the starting lineup, but that hasn't really mattered because they've also been scoring at a pace almost equal with the ridiculous pace the Warriors and Rockets are putting up since Jokic has been starting. So I don't think the Kings really will aggressively tank, but I'm really hoping that they don't try and push all their chips onto the table around the trade deadline because I don't I don't see it. Well, there we have it. It'll be an interesting couple weeks as we watch what Sacramento's doing and see exactly what type of stance they'll take as the trade deadline approaches. I think the next thing I want to talk about, and I'm sure we'll have an interesting discussion about, is DeMarcus Cousins. He's been incredible on offense. He has shown in the past, for instance, under the pre-firing Mike Malone, the ability to be a tremendous impact on the defensive end as well. He certainly has not made that impact on defense this year. And so I just want to hear from you, maybe at the start, 
what's he doing on offense? How has he expanded his game? How does this new three-point shot, I think he's shooting around 38%, impact his game this year? And how does that look for the future and his abilities to put up 50-point games like at Portland earlier in the season? His three-point shooting has been remarkable. So he's currently just a hair under 37% from deep. He sort of started trying to incorporate the three-point shot last season, but he only shot 33% from deep. And he's upped both his attempts and his shooting percentage on three-pointers this year, which is very, very difficult to do. He might be the Kings' best passer, which honestly, given how solid Ty Lawson has been in that regard this season, is incredible. His true shooting percentage is a career high, 56%. He's more efficient on offense than he ever has been. The defense is troubling. It really is. I'm not sure there's much more to say about that, but there's very little that he can't do on the offensive end. I mean, there was there was this one play about a week ago where Cousins has the ball. He's about 18 feet out. He drives to the basket through the entire opposing team and then does like the Michael Jordan, like switch hand in midair layup and just makes it perfectly. And like, that's the kind of shot that you rarely see a 6'3 guy making. You never see a 6'11 guy who can do what Cousins does with the ball in his hands. He's also, though, not got the greatest vision and isn't really creating for his teammates that much. He's got twice as many turnovers a game and half as many assists per game, if less, than his point guards like Darren Collison. So what is it that makes him turn the ball over so much, even when he's not creating a ton of opportunities for others with the ball in his hands? I'm not sure I entirely agree that he doesn't create for others with the ball in his hands. He's actually leading the team in assists right now. And the turnovers, I think, are not as much a function of him making bad passes as the fact that he just always has the ball in his hands. I mean, his usage rate this season is 37%, which would be, I think, in the top 10 all time and certainly would be more discussed if Russell Westbrook wasn't like in the low 40s, <laughs> which is, you know, its own, which is its own separate thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe the most underrated aspect of Cousins' game is that you know, in spite of what people might think of Cousins, he's he's surprisingly unselfish with the ball in his hands, and he's actually really quite good at creating for others. And he's shown a lot more of that this year than he ever has in his career before. This season is his career high in assists by like 25% improvement over his next best year. And I think that's been a big part of how he's been able to be more effective on offense for the Kings. Right, but he is still turning the ball over a ton. His assist turnover ratio is down at 1.3, less than half of that of Collison and less than a lot of other guys. Ty Lawson's up at 2.5, for example. So is he getting double teamed and not seeing the pass out soon enough a lot of times? Or is he trying to make fancier passes that maybe could be done simpler? What do, what do you see going on there? I think it's just that he is getting doubled and aggressively defended every time he has the ball in his hands, and that's not happening to anywhere near the same degree with Collison and Ty Lawson. I think it's also a little bit unfair to compare his assist-to-turnover ratio with the team's point guards, because you know those are the guys that are supposed to be the best passers on the team, and the fact that Cousins is leading the team and assists even with those guys besides him, I think, is telling. In terms of in terms of the turnovers, there are definitely times where he gets a little bit of tunnel vision and tries to force force his way to the rim when it really isn't there. There are times when he'll get the ball slapped out of his hands, and maybe it's a foul, maybe it isn't, but you know that does that does happen. 
pretty frequently when he sort of gets down in the post and everybody on the opposing team is looking at him trying to <laughs> trying to wait for him to make a play. But he's been particularly good passing the ball over over the last little bit over the last portion of the season. The first few months of the season, he was a little bit under four assists. Then in January, he had almost six assists per game, and he's only played three games in February, but he's put up 26 assists in three games. And that development might honestly be more impressive to me than his three-point shooting, because he started doing that a little bit last year. But, I mean, six assists per game for the month of January was huge for the team, especially after Rudy Gay went down. Yeah, that does make a big difference. So you've convinced me of his offensive abilities. Not that I wasn't most of the way there, but I'd love to hear why is he struggling on defense so much? He's shown his abilities before. What does it take to convince a guy to give enough effort to win the game? I understand he's got an offensive load on his shoulders, but so do a lot of other players in the NBA. So you brought up the idea of his load on offense, and I think that is a part of it. I mean, he, especially after Rudy Gay has gone down, but is basically the entire Kings offense, and he's also playing more minutes per game than any time in his career other than last season. I think that has an impact as well. But a lot of the problems with Cousins on the defensive end is that he will occasionally just not pick up his guy. Occasionally, you know, he'll just jog back after the offensive possession and, you know, try and switch onto whichever big man is closer to the perimeter and occasionally leave the rim open. He's surprisingly good at swiping the ball away and generating turnovers, but a lot of his problems on the defensive end stem from the fact that he is really... The one thing that he does not have is incredible foot speed. I'm not trying to say he's slow at all, and he's just not you know, the same caliber of pick-and-roll, switching, perimeter-defending, speedy athletic center like, say, Dwight Howard in his prime, or Joel Embiid, for instance. He's not as quick as those guys, and I think that hurts him. But the biggest thing is he puts in so much effort on the offensive end of the floor, and then a lot of times he will either be barking at the refs or just jogging his way back down the court. And when he's in position on defense, he's usually pretty good, but that's happening less, certainly less frequently this season than last season. Maybe that's because he wanted to show up George Carl a little bit. Maybe that's because he's playing an even bigger role on offense this year than he was last year, and he just doesn't have the energy for it. But I, I think a lot of it is just on the effort side, because he's a very smart player, and especially at times, I think honestly his 2014-2015 season, he was in the top half of starting centers in the league defensively, and he just hasn't been that this season at all. Yeah, so that brings us to the big money question. Would you give him the max extension? Yes, unquestionably. Why is that? All right, here's a fun one. So, during DeMarcus Cousins' tenure with the Kings, in the games that he has played, they are 169 and 297. 169 wins and 297 losses. So that's like, I think, a little under 40% winning percentage. In the games that DeMarcus hasn't played, they are 16 and 47. And I think the biggest factor in why DeMarcus has developed this reputation as, you know, a whiner and someone who's always complaining about the calls, first of all, there's a definitely a degree to which he does that too much. But if you look at a lot of these plays right before he gets a technical, 
like he definitely does not get the benefit of the doubt anywhere near as much as pretty much anyone who's been as much of a superstar as he has been. And that really gets to him. I think a lot of it also is that he is very, very competitive and he really wants to win. And he has not been on a team that has pieces to do that. And maybe this is just me, but I don't think you should ever get rid of a top 10 player in the league when you have him and he wants to stay on your team. But particularly in Sacramento, you know, he is the best player they've had since Chris Webber. And he might show over the next few years that he might actually be better than Chris Webber. And he wants to stay. He said repeatedly that he wants to stay. And all the reports from the Kings locker room say that everybody thinks his temperament has gotten better. And a lot of the issues with the refs and the issues with technical fouls this year, I think a lot of them really were undeserved. And I think if... DeMarcus were, say, I don't know, let's say he's Marcus Ole. I think he probably has eight technicals right now, about 16. Yeah, but he's not Marcus Ole. He's DeMarcus Cousins, and you got to earn that with the NBA referees a little bit. I, I would struggle to give him the maximum extension if I were running the Kings. It certainly isn't an easy call, but once you give him that extension, he's no longer tradable. He is not an asset that you can move for anything at that point. I, I want to... It's just... I don't know. I mean, Joe Johnson got traded. Gilbert Arenas got traded. You can trade guys on those contracts, and I can guarantee you Cousins is going to be a better player in two or three years than Joe Johnson and Gilbert Arenas were when they got traded. So, yeah, Joe Johnson was certainly moved, but there are a couple remarks I got to make about that. One is Joe Johnson was making roughly $20 million a year under a $60 million cap, so that's about a third. Cousins will be making 40 45 I think, by the end of his contract, and at that point, the cap will be... Right around 110, if the projections I'm seeing right now turn out to be correct, which would be closer to 35, 40% than the one-third Johnson was making. And more importantly, the NBA is getting smarter every year, most teams at least. And you can't always rely on somebody else being the fool in the room who's willing to help take your mistake off your hand and pay you to do it, like the Brooklyn Nets, unfortunately, were in the heyday of the Mikhail Prokhorov, we're going to win a title now. So if it were me, I think in the end, I might have to pay it, but I would have to think long and hard because the most important statistic on DeMarcus Cousins is 27. 27 is the number of wins the Kings have averaged in seasons where DeMarcus Cousins has been on the team. This year, that pace is 32 wins. So they occasionally do improve. They've been on the 28, 28, 32, 33, 31 win area for the past four or five years, but it's tough for me to call a guy a superstar when he's never been able to take his team to the playoffs. And that's something I think Mark Cuban got a lot of flack for last year, but wasn't necessarily wrong, although Cuban was discussing Westbrook at the time. In any case, as we move towards the end here, I'd like to talk about some of the best worst games as we discussed that bipolarity of the Kings earlier. So what are some of the best games they've played this year? I imagine the Cavs and Warriors spring to mind. Absolutely. Those were, in fact, the... The two that I that I wanted to talk about. So how did they pull those off? So I think the win against the Warriors was maybe more telling than their win against the Cavs, partially because the Warriors have been better this year, but also because I think the biggest issue for the Kings' consistency this year has been on the defensive end. And limiting the Warriors to 106 points in an overtime game was hugely important for the Kings. And one thing that was really interesting about that game is it was 
tied at halftime, it was tied at the end of the third quarter, and it was tied at the end of the fourth quarter. So it wasn't that the Kings, you know, made a huge run towards the end to make a game of it, or even that the Kings sort of made a huge rush back in garbage time and managed to force an overtime. They were with the Warriors the entire game, and that defensive effort was really important for them. And particularly, Matt Barnes, who I was a little hard on earlier in the podcast, played really excellent defense on Kevin Durant, who had literally the worst game of his career. Like, actually the fewest points that he has ever scored in an NBA game. And part of that was that Matt Barnes just stuck to him like glue. Part of it was that DeMarcus did a better job of defending the rim in that game than almost any of the games I've seen this season. He had 15 rebounds. No one on the Warriors had 10. He also had nine assists. He was by far the Kings leading playmaker in that regard. And, you know, when it got down to the very end, DeMarcus had five fouls and didn't pick up the sixth. And if he'd fouled out, that would have been it. They had, they would have had no chance. And I think the Kings were, were lucky in that they match up pretty well with the Warriors, mostly because they have no one that can stop DeMarcus Cousins, and that's what the Warriors have struggled with at times this year, is getting anyone who can really defend the rim as effectively as Andrew Bogut did, and Cousins, although he didn't have his most efficient night, he was bullying them on the glass, he was making great plays with his passes, and I think the other interesting thing about this game for the Kings is that Steph Curry actually outscored DeMarcus Cousins, and he shot 55% overall, 8 of 14 from deep. Also had nine assists, but no one else on the team was really effective. Clay Thompson had 26 points, but he took 25 shots to get there. He also had three turnovers. Draymond Green was awful. He shot six for 15. He turned the ball over six times, had half as many rebounds as Cousins did. But that game was really encouraging, not just because the Kings were able to put up points on one of the best defensive teams in the league, but really that they were able to limit this incredible Warriors offense to 106 points in 53 minutes of basketball. Yeah, it certainly was an exceptional performance and one that we don't nearly see enough of from Sacramento. But maybe the other thing you want to talk about is some of the worst games they've had, unless you want to go more in depth on another good one. I do want to talk about the Cavs win. Well, what do you want to talk about? Just briefly, the biggest play for me from that Cavs game, which DeMarcus again put up nine assists and double-digit points and rebounds, so you know I guess he didn't really want that triple-double all that badly. But the most telling thing for me is that the game-winning play, Cousins got the ball in the post, and instead of just putting his head down and trying to get to the rim and not caring who was in his way, he kicked out to Aaron Aflalo for what ended up being the game-winning shot. And that, I think, was really important for them, that, that he not only made that pass, but that he was willing to make that pass in such a big moment. And this game, I mean, LeBron had a triple-double, and all of their big three put up 20 points. Kevin Love had 21 and 16, but the Kings didn't really allow the Cavs to get much help from anywhere else. Amon Shepard actually had 16 points, but it was mostly just letting the big three do their thing and keeping everybody else relatively in check. Kyle Korver did go four for seven from three-point range, but still only 12 points in 34 minutes. Nobody else on the team was particularly effective. Tristan Thompson, I thought, would have had a really good chance to just bruise on the boards. He really didn't. And Kings actually were even in rebounding with the Cavs, which, given that Kevin Love had 16 and LeBron had 13, was pretty impressive. And I think the 
most exciting thing from this game was Willie Colley Stein had one of his better performances for the year on the glass, which is somewhere he's really struggled in the past. And if he's going to continue to get minutes, he really does need to do better in that department than he has been. So that was an encouraging game for him. And yeah, it was just, it was fun to watch. And it was really awesome that Cousins made just a beautiful pass to a follow. And you know, he rewarded by hitting down the big shot. And having DeMarcus not be the only offensive weapon on this team is really important. Yeah, it certainly is. And that's something that they will really need to address this offseason as well. One of the things I loved about that Cavs game and the pass that you talked about, that critical play, is not only was it nice to see DeMarcus make that pass after, you know, the week before he might have cost the team the win at Indiana when the defense collapsed and he just tried to bull his way through, but the fact that the shot was made makes it more likely that he's going to make that pass again in the future, and that could be really, really important for the Kings as time goes on. So maybe done talking about the high points of the season, what are some of the low points and how did they come to be? I see you marked uh, Mavs and Blazers games from December. Do you remember anything in particular that sticks out about those losses? Or what? what is it about the Kings that sometimes the highs are so high, but the lows are so low? So the game against the Mavericks really stood out to me in particular because that game, more than any game this season, and maybe honestly in a while for this team, just typified how heavily this team relies on DeMarcus Cousins. DeMarcus put up 33 points on 12 of 24 shooting. The Kings scored 79 points against the Dallas yeah. Mavericks. Not, you know, certainly not a bad defensive team, but not exactly a world beater on that end. Three of the other Kings starters, Garrett Temple, Ben McElmore, and Darren Collison, they made four shots between them, which is pretty bad and gets infinitely worse when you realize they took 23 shots. They shot four for 23. If you add in Kosakufos, who actually shot 100% from the floor, the other starters besides DeMarcus Cousins went seven for 26. And you can't win happens. Yeah, particularly in a game where I remember what those shots looked like. And it's not like Dallas was up in their face defending, forcing tough shots. Sacramento was coming down the floor, standing around, not a ton of ball movement, and guys just trying to get the shots they could. So the more that Cousins can flow and the more that the ball can move and he can set the example there, I think the better off the Kings are. Yeah, and the other troubling thing is... It's not like you know, the Mavericks were exploding on the offensive end. I mean, their best scorer, Harrison Barnes, put up 15 points on 15 shots. But the bench defense by the Kings was just awful. I mean, Seth Curry, 5 for 10, 13 points. Devin Harris, 5 for 10, 14 points. Dwight Powell somehow managed to put up 8 points on 4 shots. And even with a bad offensive performance by Harrison Barnes, they still almost managed to hit the century mark, and obviously the Kings just could, <laughs> couldn't score at all. And, you know, it's particularly telling of the Kings because, of course, two days before that, they beat the Grizzlies in Memphis. And then they go out and just put up an awful, awful performance against the Mavericks. Yeah. And then later in December, they also had a tough loss against the Blazers. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Sure. So that wasn't as egregious a loss, in my opinion, as the one to the Mavericks, and that's not to hate on the Mavericks, it's just that that was their seventh win in 27 games this season, and the Mavs have been a lot better since then, but that was just an awful game by the Kings. The game against the Trailblazers was a lot closer, it was 102-89, but the main reason that this game upset me is that 
the Kings were at the eighth seed at this point, and Portland was sort of one of the challengers behind them. And this really could have been a statement game where the Kings come out, have an awesome performance, and, you know, put themselves in a good position to continue competing for the eighth seed. But their bench was really, really bad in this game. And, you know, once again, DeMarcus Cousins put up 28 points, and then Garrett Temple put up 14 on 13 shots. Matt Barnes, 13 on 11 shots. No one else on the team scored more than 8 points. And Anthony Tolliver, 1 for 6. Ty Lawson, 2 for 8. Darren Collison, 2 for 7. Ben McElmore, 2 for 9. And the Blazers didn't have Damian Lillard in this game. And they still won by quite a decent margin. Despite A, not having Damian Lillard, and also C.J. McCollum shooting 33% from the floor. I mean, this was a game that the Kings could have made a real statement and could have really put their season in a great place, and instead they just didn't bring it. And that game sort of sparked off a pretty sizable downturn for the Kings. They were 14-17 and 17 coming into that game, and then they proceeded to lose 13 of their next 18 games. <laughs> yeah, and that was a very winnable game, too, as you mentioned. So before we go, I wanted to ask, what are your feelings on the Kings' future? What do you think they need this offseason? Do you think that the fact that they have the Sixers swap is going to hurt them? If they do, in fact, manage to keep their pick, are they really just going to lose it anyways or drop back farther? And just in general, how are you feeling about the Kings' future? So the pick swap, I'm not particularly worried about because at this point in the season, I don't think the Sixers are going to end up being far enough ahead of the Kings for that to be really damaging. I mean, the Sixers are currently two games back at the Kings, and even though they've been playing a lot better recently, and especially if they get Ben Simmons back for the close of the season, they might end the season on a decent run. But I think either way, at this point, the pick is going to be somewhere around the 8-12 to 12 range. So, you know, maybe they swap the 8th pick for the 11th pick. I would really hate for this to be the year that the Kings move up in the lottery for the first time ever. That would be soul-crushing. That would be tough. That would be tough to handle in Sacramento. Yeah. But in terms of the future, I mean, I've been a fan of Willie Cauley-Stein since before he was drafted. I think the front court of the future really should be him and DeMarcus. And I think the two of them can fit really well together. They're old UK pals, and all of those Kentucky guys know each other and are friends with each other. And... I think that will be a solid front court for at least the next, you know, three or four years. In terms of the offseason, I think the big question is whether Rudy Gay opts in or not. That will determine a huge degree of the Kings' financial flexibility. Rudy has said a lot of things about how he does not want to remain in Sacramento, but unfortunately for Rudy, the injury changes that because if he opts out of that contract, He's probably not going to be fully healthy by the time free agency starts. And even if he is, I don't think teams are going to be willing to risk giving out a huge contract to him, given that they haven't seen what he's going to look like once he's recovered. So I've heard a number of thoughts about how the Kings should maybe just try and trade Rudy for a second round pick in case there's another team that like wants to take a chance on him next season, especially if it's a team that he is going to be more likely to want to stay with than the Kings. I think the Kings should have traded Rudy earlier in the season, and it's 
just awful, awful for Rudy to have so much writing on this entry, and it just could not have possibly come at a worse time. But that really complicates things. Not knowing what he's going to do really complicates things. Really what the Kings need to try and do this offseason is just get guard help, because Ty Lawson is probably going to get a big contract somewhere else. Aaron Aflalo, I'm not sure if they're going to want to keep him or not, but he's been playing a lot more small forward than shooting guard, especially recently. I think Malachi is too young to be thrown into a starting role as early as next season. Ben McLemore is almost certainly gone. So they're going to need they're going to need help in the backcourt. I think their frontcourt is really going to be solid for a while to come. And if they can keep Omri Caspi after this year, I think he would also be a good complement as a small forward to Cousins and Cauley Stein. And I think that really is where their future lies, is just how good can Willie Cauley Stein be, especially on the defensive end, because the frontcourt offense is already taken care of. It's just a matter of Will Cousins put in the effort on defense if the Kings start getting better and winning more games? But more to the point, can Cauley Stein really be the all-defensive team wrecking force that I thought he would be coming out of Kentucky and that he's shown really positive signs of being at times throughout this season and last season? Yeah, if they can manage to pull out a point guard in this draft who can be a guy for the future and all-around threat, I think they might be able to build a pretty solid team even with Cousins on the max money. And with that, I think it's about time to wrap up. I want to say don't forget to check out the website. It's hashtag basketball.com. You could also follow the Twitter at hash basketball. And if you want to hear more from me and Nick, you can check out at the JC Fisher on Twitter. And Nick is at NBA underscore Johnson. So give us a follow, look for the pod, and Nick will be back as your full-time host next week. (laughs) 